China has emerged as one of the 21st century's most consequential nations, making it more important than ever to understand how the country is governed. Welcome to Pekingology, the podcast that unpacks China's evolving political system. I'm Jude Blanchett, the Freeman Chair in China Studies at CSIS, and this week I'm joined by Chunhan Wang, a China reporter for the Wall Street Journal. Today we'll be discussing his new book, Party of One, The Rise of Xi Jinping and China's Superpower Future. Chunhan, thanks for joining the podcast. Thank you, Jude. Pleasure to be on the show. First question is same that I ask all guests, which is I'd love to hear a little bit about your interests in China, how they developed, and how did you carve out a career as a reporter for the Wall Street Journal covering Chinese politics? Sure. So actually, I joined the journal back in 2010, 2011, first with the Newswire side and then moved on to covering At first, I joined in Singapore. So actually, I was covering Singapore politics and Southeast Asian politics. But then I had the opportunity to move to Beijing in 2014 when the bureau chief at the time, Charles Hutzler, whom you may know, um, he basically asked me, like, are you interested to cover China? And, you know, it's a question you couldn't really say no to. It's China at the time, rising superpower, plenty of things going on, plenty of political drama, economic influence that's growing all over the world, and basically could not say no to, no, say no to this opportunity. And... Moved to Beijing in 2014. That's when I basically started to come to grips with the, the vast difference in the challenge between covering a small country like Singapore or a smaller region like Southeast Asia to covering a country of 1.4 billion people. Trying to understand, you know, the the different dynamics that are happening in Chinese society. Trying to understand the inner workings of a very opaque black box political system. It's quite a level up, you know. There's a lot. There were a lot of things to learn when I first started, but I had a very good boss, very good colleagues who basically showed me the ropes. I had good friends like yourself who taught me how to figure out and try to find ways to read into the Chinese system, whether it's reading state media or looking at journal articles or talking to the right people. That took a while, but you know, I felt that after a couple of years, I had came to grips with the challenges of trying to understand Chinese politics, and from there, I tried to. Build on that. Even after I got forced to leave China in 2019, I moved to Hong Kong. You know, I tried to use the same skills that I developed and continue to do the same job. We were just talking about this topic before we clicked record. I wonder, not to put you on the spot, but I wonder if you can just offer some impressions on the challenge of reporting on China from outside of China, but also maybe work in something you just told me, which I agree with, which is.、Mm -hmm. Even if you're in China, it's becoming harder to to do the sort of reporting that you were doing in 2014 or 2015. As mentioned just now, I moved to Hong Kong in 2019, not by choice, but basically they didn't renew my visa. And then, so from that point, it was sort of trying to figure out, okay, what is possible to do in terms of covering mainland Chinese politics from sort of a distance. Hong Kong is part of China, of course, but you know there is a significant difference in how Hong Kong works, how the political system is set up. Versus what's going on in Beijing, and that distance does make it harder to try to figure out what's going on in the capital. You you can't talk to the same people you used to talk to. You don't get that tactile feel on the ground. You know when you're on the ground in Beijing or anywhere else in China, you get this very real, very visceral sense of what's going on. Whether it's a change in propaganda slogans or you know just the vibe among people you hang out with, that that's the sort of thing that you can't really get from a distance. So that's what I miss in a sense. Like, if I want to continue doing this job, I do wish that I have the chance to experience that on the ground. But from a distance, there are things I think you can try to do, which increasingly people, even in people in the mainland, have to do, which is 
rely on open source research, rely on try, um, finding various sources of information, which you may previously not have thought to be useful. You know, just trying to triangulate all sorts of um, data points to put together and trying to get at what you think is actually going on behind the scenes. Um, from Hong Kong and now I'm based in Singapore, I think the challenge is basically, you know, try to keep in touch with people who do have a feel of what's going on, on the ground, because that will still help you inform your perspective and basically keep in touch with how people experience things in China. At the same time, trying to match that and like trying to find corresponding information to state media, to economic data, whatever is left that we can access now, and talk to even people who leave China, whether they you know, for example, politicians, business people, diplomats who were able to go come in and out of China. You try to talk to these people who can give you a more up-to-date view on what's happening. So I think that's it's not an easy task. It's it's getting more and more challenging. As 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 mentioned just now, like there are people that I just spoke to some people in based in Beijing and they themselves tell me they their friends, their contacts, whether in politics or business, are becoming more and more reluctant to speak to foreigners because there's a perceived yeah. risk that talking to foreigners brings this sort of scrutiny on yourself. Like, are you providing sensitive information to outsiders that you shouldn't be? This sort of fear is very visceral. Like, it, it has an impact on the quality of conversations you can have even in China. So more and more people inside and outside have to find other ways, more creative ways to figure out what's going on. We're recording this on August 22nd, and right now we're in the midst of a, a lot of confusion by external analysts about the state of policymaking and decision-making in Beijing right now. You're seeing China's own version of an economic polycrisis. Obviously, a lot of this stemming from management or mismanagement or the intentional pricking of a real estate bubble that they underestimated the externalities or the, the volatilities that they would be creating. But you're seeing deflation, you're seeing surprise rate cuts by the PBOC, you're seeing in shadow finance, you're seeing just, just a whole mess of economic challenges for China. I wonder, as a, a student of Chinese decision-making, What's your assessment of how Beijing is processing and responding to current events? Do you see bureaucratic confusion? Do you see this as the result of an increasingly personalized political system where everyone is sort of grasping at intuitions as to what the dear leader wants? What's your kind of hot take on what's going on in Beijing right now? Mm -hmm. So I think one way to understand the decision-making is, as, as you discussed, you know, people are trying to intuit what Xi Jinping wants. And when it comes to economic policy, the general understanding about Xi is that he's not really an expert on economic policy. He was never trained in economics. He, Although he had experience governing major provinces like Zhejiang and Fujian, where he had experience managing the local economy, but there's a sense that most analysts and people who, who have met Xi and spoken to him, they don't get the sense that he truly has a good grasp of economic theory or the sort of nitty-gritty policy details that, you know, might expect a more technocratic leader to grasp and be able to come to terms with in setting an economic policy. Having said that, she has made very clear, I think, what he wants to see for China on an economic front. He talks a lot about high-quality development, which I think is this theme, you know, that he has come to use to define his, his the core of his economic vision. And that may or may not be sort of this 
overarching theme that has, has maybe restricted officials in terms of the policy options they might roll out. For quite some time now, a lot of analysts have expected some sort of big bazooka credit stimulus to, to be rolled out to support Chinese economy. But we haven't seen that. Uh, if anything, we've only seen sort of piecemeal measures or like targeted policy tweaks that are meant to improve, streamline the bureaucracy, make it easy for businesses to function, things like that, but no massive stimulus. I think that you could explain it to some degree to, to the fact that you know, she has basically demanded high quality development, which is in a way not repeating the mistakes of the Hu era. After the global financial crisis, 08, 09, you know, there's a massive stimulus pumped out to stabilize the economy. And that brought along a lot of problems from you know, overinvestment, excess industrial capacity, which she spent much of his first term trying to resolve. And in fact, the after effects have continued to linger in the Chinese economy today. And I think that's something that Xi Jinping wants to avoid. He made that clear through his sloganeering about high quality development. And China's problems today are sort of require a new playbook of which policymakers are not, when you tell them you can't really go back to the tools you have before, you have to figure out new things, figure out new methods for dealing with these problems. And I think that's probably one aspect of the problem, that right? they, they have these new strictures, the overall theme that Xi Jinping sets for them in terms of what sort of economic policies they can set, but they have to find a new way, new methods for dealing with problems they never had to face before. Yeah, that's such an important point that I think we've become so used to the party finding ways to kick the can or pull some sort of rabbit out of a hat, but across the board, both domestically and externally, the party is just dealing with a whole new set of challenges that in some ways it appears ill-equipped to successfully navigate, especially as you just mentioned, with some of the more rigid bureaucratic structures and expectations and guidelines that have been laid on. This segues just perfectly into the book, which was perfectly timed for the moment when I think we're reaching peak anxiety, confusion, and concern about China's trajectory. And as we were just discussing, seeing many of the pathologies of the political system, but also Xi Jinping's own particular style of, of governance come to the fore. Can I ask you, before we get into the book, just talk, talk us through what motivated you to put pen to paper? You were in Beijing at the time. You're covering Chinese politics. What were some of the, the puzzles you wanted to answer or what were some of the tentative arguments that you wanted to test as you researched and wrote this book? Mm -hmm. I actually didn't have like a major thesis that I was trying to put forth when I first came up with the idea of writing the book. Essentially, it started as a more simple idea. Basically, when people talk to me like, oh, you cover China, you're, you cover write about Chinese politics. Is there a book you can recommend to me to read about Chinese political system? And let me, like, basically help me come to terms with China of today and how things work. And for a long time, I would recommend people read Richard McGregor's The Party. The problem with that is that that book came out in 2010, two years before Xi Jinping came to power. And as I worked in China, I, I arrived in China in 2014, and as the years went by, as the Xi era really started to set in, you know, you start to realize that, okay, Richard McGregor's The Party is a very good book, has a very good primer at the time when it came out. But the more Xi Jinping changed about the Communist Party, the more he changed the way politics worked in China, the less McGregor's book is able to help people understand what's going on in, in Xi Jinping's China. So I felt that there was sort of this market gap, that there is a demand or there's a absence of a good book 
that can explain Chinese politics of the Xi era. And I thought, well, perhaps I could attempt to write such a book and try to bring to life the sort of changes that Xi has made. And as the title suggests, in you know, a party of one, you know, Xi Jinping essentially, you could say, remade the party around himself in his own image, around his agenda, around his vision, you know, moving the party from a period where he was trying to become a more governing party. It stepped back from the front lines. There was more of a separation of duties between the government and the party and moving it to an era where the party is more on a, on a front foot. It is in the front lines of policymaking. As Xi Jinping says, the party leads everything. There's no longer pretending that the state and the party are separate. And above all, Xi Jinping is the guy. You know, he is the man who stands on top of this political machine, highly centralized. His will is channeled from the top to the bottom. And so I guess the book was trying to explain how this came to be, why Xi Jinping wanted this to be the case, why did he restructure the system around himself, and what are the consequences of such centralization of power? You know, I want to explain how this has affected how Chinese bureaucrats think, how the bureaucracy changed the way it functions, and also look into the negative consequences this has thrown up in policymaking and governance on the ground. Great. Thanks. Yeah. And, and I should say to the listeners out there who have themselves written books and are insulted that Chun Han did not, was not recommending their book as he wrote his, I would just say that's not an insult against your book. It's just Chun Han is not particularly well read. So <laughs> he, he just didn't know about all the great books that have, have been written. And he went the Rube Goldberg way of instead of, you know, instead of familiarizing himself with the mm-hmm. literature, just decided to write his own book. Yeah, no, but just it, it really much. isn't, you know, obviously everyone who listens to this podcast should have or has read Richard's book, which was awesome, right? And and really yeah. defined define how many of us thought about the party. It was definitely the first kind of modern book to say, hey, the party matters. Mm-hmm. But as you say, your book takes us right up to the present. So through COVID, through the corruption purges, so it really captures the state of play up until today. Mm-hmm. We don't have time in this podcast to, to talk about everything in the book because mm-hmm. it does span the entire gamut of, of she's time and power. And mm-hmm. the book is also very much a book about the party itself. So what mm-hmm. I thought we could do is pick a narrow slice of this book and, and talk about it. And we had agreed that one good topic would be the a later chapter in the book called One Man's Fate, which mm-hmm. is about the challenge of succession, which mm-hmm. is not a risk we think about day to day in China, mm-hmm. because the actuarials for dictators seem to be pretty good for reasons I don't entirely understand. So mm-hmm. Xi Jinping will will likely be around for a very long time. He's relatively young. He's certainly a lot younger than the current leader of our regime here in the United United States. But nonetheless, whereas we know exactly what the succession procedure would be in a constitutional democracy or a political system with more regularized power transition mechanisms, China, it's, a, it's an entirely different story. So I, I thought we would talk about that. And if I could pose a, an initial question to you, which is a level set question before we get into... Xi Jinping is, can, can you first just talk about succession in authoritarian political systems more generally, and including in China across time? Why is it so difficult for autocratic political systems and, and China in particular? Again, this is not a new problem. Why mm-hmm. is it so difficult for them to 
regularly, predictably, and in a systematized way, transfer political power from one autocrat to another? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this is the core question. As you and I know, Bruce Dixon once famously wrote this thing that the central drama in Chinese politics since 1949 is succession. And in fact, you could go further than that. Chinese imperial history is full of succession dramas. As I wrote about in my book, the, the first anecdote I use in the chapter on succession is actually describing how Qing dynasty succession politics functioned and particularly how they ended up using this system of secret naming of a, a successor, where they write the name of the next emperor, put it in a box, put it behind this a tablet that sits above the dragon throne. And you, you know, officials, when the emperor dies, would compare two copies of you know, one on the emperor's person and one in the box to see whether the name of the next emperor matches up. And if so, you know who the next guy is. You know, that's sort of like a way to tell the reader, like, this is a long-standing issue that Chinese people have thought about, Chinese leaders throughout the centuries have dealt with. And so in some ways, Xi Jinping is not unique in confronting this problem. He has, in fact, you could argue, thousands of years of history to look back on to figure out, you know, what are some of the best practices that he could use in trying to decide how he's going to hand over power himself. Specifically about authoritarian systems, I guess one way to look at it is the core problem that any authoritarian leader has to deal with is this thing called the successor's dilemma. Autocratic leaders tend to prefer installing successors who they believe can protect their legacy and also their personal safety in retirement. But at the same time, the leader in waiting, the next guy, has to start building his power base ahead of time. You know, you cannot leave it too late or too close to the handover or even after before this successor starts to build his own power base. Because if, you, if that's the case, then there's a very good chance that the next leader could get deposed or be made an ineffectual leader after he actually takes office. And if that happens, then the previous leader would have failed in his primary task, which is to hand over power to some guy who can basically uphold and defend his legacy. And the problem is when you start to decide who the next successor is and you start handing over power, you make clear who he is, there's also another dynamic that comes into play, which is the political elite would naturally start to realign their loyalties. They would start to try to befriend the new leader, build connections with him, build rapport with him. And that inevitably would sap away at some of the authority of the incumbent leader. It is just something that happens by nature. There's no way to avoid it once you kick this process into, you kickstart this process. So whoever is in charge right now has to think very carefully. Who I want to choose to succeed me? When do I start this process? How much certainty do I want to make this process appear to have? Because all these considerations, all these factors will have an impact on his own current power, his ability to exercise it in the process of handing over the leadership to the next guy. Can I ask for your explanation then of the sort of the dog that didn't bark, which is I'm, I'm thinking of the the quote you have at the top of the chapter, which is from Deng Xiaoping, someone we credit in mm-hmm. retrospect with saving the party after the, the death of Mao, redirecting mm-hmm. China on a more sustainable political trajectory, the blemish of Tiananmen Square massacre notwithstanding. But you've got a great quote here from Deng, which says, building a nation's fate on the reputation of one or two people is very unhealthy and very dangerous, which makes total sense until you think about the role of Deng Xiaoping in the 1980s and the 1990s, which was the the reputation and the nation's fate really did depend on one or two individuals, namely Deng Xiaoping, who was playing 
puppeteer uh, of the political system. But it raises an interesting question, which is, although he was serving the role formally and then informally as Primus Inter Paris, manipulating and determining succession outcomes, he also did, by the time he died in 1997, had positioned a few leaders in place who could then rule China. And it seemed to many of us, you know, if we were having this discussion in 2007, 2008, wow, they've actually solved this succession challenge. Why do you think there was this period in the 100-year history of the Communist Party stretching from the 1990s or maybe the aftermath of Tiananmen Square to the rise of Xi Jinping in 2012? All the things you just mentioned about successor's dilemma, all those pathologies or potential pathologies existed in the 80s and 90s and the 2000s. Why do you think Beijing was able to sort of plug its fingers in the hole of the succession dam and hold it together for that long? Sorry to drag this question on, but put it another way, I guess. Is the puzzle Xi Jinping not selecting a successor? Or is that just the reversion to the norm and the puzzle is actually this 15 or 20 year period in the 90s and 2000s when China was able to essentially hold together for the better part of two decades, a somewhat stable succession process. What's the puzzle? Mm -hmm. I think the the 20, 30 year where we had a stable and somewhat predictable succession process, actually the exception approves the rule. Because for most of Chinese history, we had authoritarian leadership, right? You had imperial dynasties and then transition to the Republic of China, which also had its own issues with succession, even after they, it, it, you know, she was forced to relocate to Taiwan. And now People's Republic, you could argue that there's a far more continuity in terms of the problems of leadership succession throughout these various regimes. And that couple of decade period where Deng Xiaoping handed over power to Jiang and Jiang handed over power to Hu and Hu handed over power to Xi with quite reasonable amount of clarity and timelines were more or less met with the exception of one or two cases. That was actually sort of not what things tend to be. And the fact that this happened, I think you could credit it to actually the fact that Deng Xiaoping essentially decided two successions down the line. And he essentially took the decision for picking a successor out of Jiang Zemin's hands. And his Basically, when Hu Jintao was promoted to the Standing Committee, Politburo Standing Committee in 1992, that essentially was it. Jiang Zemin, obviously, he could have tried to change that decision, but as it proved, he failed to if he wanted to. The decision was essentially made for him by his predecessor. So that sort of allowed this process to seem predictable because the incumbent, in the case of Jiang, actually didn't really have an opportunity to meddle with the decision that was really made for him. And in whose case, he also didn't have a choice of a successor. Xi Jinping's elevation was not a Hu decision by himself. It was part of this negotiated succession process, a very opaque process where, you know, party elders, certain cliques and factions within the party elite sort of negotiate, okay, who can we accept to be elevated to be the next leader? So neither Jiang or Hu actually had free hand in deciding who the next guy is. Deng Xiaoping had that, and he decided two successions down the line. So I think that gave us this sort of illusion of stability and predictability. And then now we're back to a situation where actually the incumbent now pretty much has a free hand to decide who the next guy is. And all the old problems have come back because we have no certainty over his decision-making process, no clarity over timelines. 
And basically, we've gone back to the era where uncertainty is basically the, the key issue when it comes to Chinese leadership succession. I also would recommend a really good paper by Ma Xiao uh, on this from 2016 called Term Limits on Authoritarian Power Sharing Theory and Evidence from China, which is which came out the year that Xi Jinping was elevated to the, quote, core of the party, which happened that fall. But what what Ma Xiao did really effectively in this paper is essentially describe the power sharing dynamics that are needed for a sort of somewhat stable term limit succession process to be in effect. And as soon as you see the breakdown of that power sharing agreement, then succession term limits go out the window. And that clearly proved the case with Xi that as long as you had relatively powerful, numerous relatively powerful factions in the party, it sort of maintained a, a succession process because that, that was the result of a, of a competitive political process. But under Xi, you don't have those factions, and so, that, so it breaks down. So anyway, Ma, Ma Xiao's paper is really good on, the, on this front. I wonder if next you can talk about how Xi Jinping managed to disassemble that tentative, fragile process that you just outlined mm -hmm. that occurred under Jiang Zemin, then, then Hu Jintao, of course, under the shadow of, of Deng Xiaoping. Was this just a matter of some of the environmental and ecosystem attributes of the Jiang and the Hu period disappearing, and therefore that opened up space for Xi Jinping to simply assume the mantle and not feel compelled to pass it on? Or did he take offensive bureaucratic moves to ensure that a decision on succession was his alone? I think one way to look at it is that I don't think Xi Jinping was attacking the problem in terms of like, oh, how do I want to do succession? I think the, the key problem that he was trying to solve is political control. And he believed that China needed a highly centralized leadership where clear lines of reporting, absolute, reviving the Leninism in the Communist Party, where you know it's completely hierarchical, top-down leadership. And with him as the ultimate leader at the center, able to channel his will from Beijing down to the grassroots. And I think that was the key political problem is trying to solve, trying to ensure that China had this strong central force holding together the country and preventing like centrifugal forces from tearing the country apart. And by solving this problem or attempting to solve this problem, he has basically revived the old succession problems because, you know, as you talked about the paper you mentioned just now, where, where there was a more competitive internal debate within the party, um, more competitive elements within the party leadership. You know, there was more power sharing and perhaps more deliberations and consultations on choosing the next guy. When the current leader has basically succeeded to a very large extent in eliminating rivals, sidelining people who could challenge him and centralizing most decision-making powers, if not all of them, in his own hands, that has natural effects on who gets to influence succession. Part of the reasons we discussed just now as to why, you know, the party had this period where it seemed to have a very smooth succession process, because, you know, there are lots of people involved. The party elders were involved, retired people, people with no formal positions in the party leadership were able to have a say. And that was a problem that she tried to eliminate. As we know, she basically cleared out people through corruption purges and also undermined potential rival power centers by breaking down the political networks and preventing retired elders and sort of peripheral members of the party elite, you know, princelings who don't have formal leadership positions, prevented these people from actually meddling in, in, in top leadership decisions. And when 
insofar as he succeeded in doing this, and I think we can all agree that he has succeeded to a very large extent, you take out other potential decision makers. You take out other power players who can influence succession. And this leaves pretty much you know, decision to himself. He may still consult people in the sense that he will have to talk to his lieutenants. He have to talk to other people in the party to get a sense of, is this guy suitable to take over me? Basically assess his potential successors. But by virtue of the fact that he has established himself as number one, numero uno in the party, he has basically, at the same time, centralized the, the final decision-making on succession in his own hands. But I don't think he set out to change how succession works. It's more that he set out to change how Chinese politics works. And that came along the changes in how the succession system would have played out. The obvious shortcoming of Xi Jinping's view of Chinese politics, or at least his, if, if we take your point that he, he doesn't have an active, did not have an active plan to defang the succession process per se, but just remade politics. And as a result was the, the defanging or the eradication of succession the thing I would be worried about if I were Xi Jinping was the continuity of my policy agenda to remake China after after I leave power. You know, this is a challenge not only for dictators, but also for heads of any organization, especially when you're a strong outsized figure is it's hard to know when you hang up your spurs and it's very difficult to identify, cultivate and install a credible successor. This happens in corporations all the time. Sometimes you get it right with a Tim Cook. Sometimes sometimes you don't. I wonder if you could speculate a little bit on what you think Xi Jinping's plan is. It's clearly not unintentional, right? He removed term limits on the office of the presidency in March 2018. He's not named a successor. He's not stupid. So obviously he knows it's it's awaiting his decision. I know we don't know this, but can you just think out loud about what what a potential plan might be for him. Does he stay on for another party Congress? And then at the you know 21st party Congress in 2027, sort of put someone more clearly in the position? Or do you think he does a Mao and just basically hangs on till the very end with some kind of weak attempts to install a, a Lin Biao or a Liu Xiaoqi only to see them swatted away? First of all, I think... In terms of what I mentioned just now in answering the previous question, in terms of like how Xi Jinping views the succession problem, I think it's interlinked. You know, why he ended up changing the succession process is because it's these are certain you know strictures that prevent him from exercising power fully. As we mentioned, the succession dilemma earlier. You know, the the timeline as to when you hand over power, the fact that you have a term limit on yourself does impose real limits on your ability to exercise power because people anticipate you exiting office by a certain time frame. That means they naturally start to gravitate away. They start to identify potential successes and your own power starts to ebb. So Xi Jinping, in trying to consolidate power and centralize power in his own hands, has to change the way succession works in China by dismantling some of the past procedures and practices but as I was explaining, I don't think he set out to change succession for its own sake. It's because he wanted to centralize and consolidate power in his own hands for his, to enable himself to pursue his own vision. And that's what led him to do these changes to how succession procedures work, succession practices were carried out in China. In terms of what he might do, in terms of handing over power when the time eventually comes, I do actually think on balance, 
he is more likely to want to hand over power before he dies than otherwise. I say this because I think that is the best uh, approach in terms of ensuring he has made every effort to ensure his legacy is protected. Choosing a successor is any incumbent leader's you know, top prerogative. It is your responsibility. You might even argue that the, the day, the very first day you become leader, you should already start thinking about who's next. Because everything you do in your time in office would have come to naught, would be destroyed if you choose the wrong guy and you fail to hand over power in a smooth way that ensures the next guy can actually hang around long enough to protect what you achieved. So I think it is likely that Xi Jinping wants to have the predominant say, and in fact, more or less choose the successor before he is unable to do so through incapacitation or death. And whether he chooses to do so when he's still fairly young, i.e. like he does so in, within the next one or two party congresses, or he stays, it, stays on for much longer, that doesn't Mao, as you say, you know, basically sort of choose one, but then continually assess potential successors and change them as, if necessary, and then basically only hand over power when you finally expire. To be honest, I think it's a question only Xi Jinping can answer himself. Perhaps he himself doesn't really know the answer to this question because there's so many factors at play. When you're the incumbent leader, you're assessing potential successors, you're assessing your own grip on power, you're assessing the extent to which your vision has been achieved. You know, you're trying to decide for yourself, have I done enough? Have I done enough to deliver on my own vision? Do I want to stay on longer to try to see if I can achieve more? Do I feel comfortable in handing over power? Is there anyone in my team right now who I feel comfortable in taking over me? Yeah. So all these are very complex, dynamic issues which Xi Jinping was constantly evaluating and re-evaluating as he gets more information, as he sees people perform. By now, he may have identified like a few people who he thinks has the potential of taking over one day, but his views of these people might change as they perhaps make mistakes or someone else does better than anticipated. So this guy actually now gets elevated in his point of view as a better potential successor. All these questions are unanswerable for people on the outside. Even people on the inside in a system like China's, Leninist system, highly opaque, there's huge information asymmetry. People at the very top perhaps might know more than we do, but they also don't have perfect information. Yeah. Within the top leadership, yeah, people also, you know, second guess each other. They try to figure out what he knows. They don't know what leadership the Xi Jinping thinks. They try to play on that to game the succession process in their favor. So basically, in, in short, it's, it's, it's a very difficult question to answer, even for people within the system. So much more for us. I, I think that's such an important point. And it's something if you look at former high-ranking officials in other autocratic systems who come out and write memoirs or, or articles, you saw a lot of this reporting coming out of the Soviet Union and the satellite states, officials who would indicate just how poor the information environment is in the system. Partly because, as you mentioned, sort of structural opacity, but also the amount of misinformation that is a direct result of bureaucratic infighting, everyone currying for the leader's favor, attempting to sideline other potential bureaucratic rivals. And then finally, I was just thinking that the list of things Xi Jinping will have to contemplate indicate to me why he's going to stay on forever, because A given the challenges China is going to face over the next decade to 10 to 15 years, I don't see any point where Xi Jinping says, my work is done here, comrades. Two, 
individuals always underestimate their health. Um, it's the classic problem of try to get grandpa to stop driving to the store and try to have that <laughs> battle, right? It's very hard yeah. for, for individuals to unilaterally say, you know what? I think I am too old. T- time to hang up, hang up the spurs. And then the third issue you mentioned is, does he trust anyone to take over? A, a, a structural side effect of autocratic governance is you don't really like being surrounded by people more capable than you. Mm-hmm. You want people who are who are not a threat to you and will just do what you want. So that means this is why oftentimes you have sycophants next in line for, for the job. So, you know, I think he may have a plan or an idea, vague idea, but I think that the tendency will always be ah, next party Congress. Yeah. Maybe if I can now just final couple questions, then we'll let you go. One is let's imagine a world in which, and, and you've done some great reporting on Xi Jinping's health and the rumors uh, around it. Let's imagine, and I'm not wishing this on Xi Jinping. I don't wish this on any human being, but let's just imagine tomorrow he has a, a heart attack and he's laid up in the hospital, goes incommunicado, or let's imagine he dies relatively young at the age of 70. What do you expect would happen in the system? Walk us through those first few hours and days. What what process is there and what do you think, irrespective of the process, what do you think the actual churn would look like as the system tries to respond to an incapacitated or a deceased Xi Jinping? Mm-hmm. Well, this is a very difficult question and any answer would be highly speculative. And I think it would be remiss not to bring out the famous 2017 movie by Amado Iannucci, Death of Stalin, as a sort of device for trying to help us think through like what sort of outcomes and what sort of things might happen in the event of the incapacitation and or death of a very powerful leader. And as you saw in the movie, you know, of course, the movie is highly fictionalized depiction of real events, compressing things that happened over many months or even years into span of, I say, I think one or two weeks. But I think the dynamics that show the sort of processes the main characters went through in trying to sort out, you know, succession arrangements, trying to put themselves in, you know, prime position to take over. That's the sort of dynamics we can expect to see in the event of a similar development in the Chinese system. And the problem is we don't really have many clear rules and procedures to fall back on at least in terms of what's written in the constitution and other relevant regulations. You know, as we know, the general secretary is the most powerful position and it has to be chosen by the central committee, which who can summon, who can convene the central committee meeting in the event of leadership incapacitation. There is no 25th amendment, right, in the Chinese system. Who gets to decide that Xi Jinping is incapacitated to a sufficient degree that we must summon the party elite to come together to discuss and ruminate on the choice of an interim successor or full-time successor. Like all these questions are important ones, but insofar as the letter of the party charter and the Chinese constitution are concerned, there, there is no procedures. In, some, in, in, in the absence of clear procedures, I think what might happen is people in certain key positions who have control over information flows who have control over certain key institutions like the security forces or you know, are able to control the flow of information within the party. These people might have far more power than their titular position suggests because they can shape events in terms of how the leadership responds, who finds out first, 
Who finds out the leader's capacity the first? Who do they tell? All these little things can affect how the party responds because different people finding out different times, responding to the situation, and acting first. As we saw in the movie *Death of Stalin*, you know everyone tried to get to Stalin first. Beria, Khrushchev, Malenkov—they all raced to the Dhaka because they wanted to be there first and take control of the situation. So I think a similar dynamic might play out in the Chinese system. Unfortunately, with so little information about how precisely you know information flows work in the top Chinese leadership, we are left to guess as to who actually in in the, in the leadership can influence this process. Who might be in a better position? To shape outcomes, but I think it's clear. For example, we know that currently Han Zheng, vice president, is almost certainly not going to be the next guy. He is in a ceremonial position, even though by the constitution he would step up as president in the interim. But there's no impact on who becomes general secretary. A general secretary, more likely than not, would come from someone within the stand, the standing committee, or perhaps even within the broader Politburo. But at the same time, we still we we have no clear idea because. That all that depends on very contingent events that happen in the wake of a leadership incapacitation, interpersonal relationships between individual leaders, which we're not very clear about. We can guess as to who has better connections with someone else, but ultimately, it's something that you know we can only speculate about. And so, with all these internal dynamics at play, it's I think it's very hard to realistically game out actual scenarios. But I think. Having known that we, what we incumbent upon us is to try to understand what factors are important, and when something does happen, we are better prepared to read the tea leaves, so to speak. We see certain signs emerge. We see certain things happening. We can use the, our contextual knowledge of how things have happened in the past. We can use past events as references and try to guide our analysis as to what's happening in the system and perhaps react better. This is a topic of, as you say, it's fraught with speculation, but it's also one that's pretty darn important. Given that China remains the second largest economy in the world, a very active nuclear weapons state, mm-hmm. huge global military diplomatic presence, and as you just mentioned, tons of speculation about what would happen if Xi Jinping choked on a dumpling, which. As, as we saw, I, I always mention this anecdote, but when Ronald Reagan was shot in 1981, Alexander Haig, the then Secretary of State, stood up in front of the press and said, I'm in charge. And he wasn't. It was the vice president who was technically in de jure in charge. But it shows you, even in a democratic system with really well-refined succession procedures, there's still lots of uncertainty about what would happen if if a president were to be incapacitated or, or 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 to be killed. This happened when Donald Trump got COVID-19. Again, the, his health wasn't seriously in question, but I remember the lots of breathless coverage in the media about transition of power, what it would mean for policy agenda. I mean, I think we can multiply that by a factor of, of 10x mm-hmm. if we're thinking about China. All of that is to say the, the place where People who want to think about this and know more about this and have the requisite background information fortunately now have the best place to go, which is your new book, Party of One, for sale at every great bookseller. Chunhan would like you to not buy it 
on Amazon because he will make no money off of the purchase there. So so do, please do go to a bookstore and buy a physical copy to maximize his income earning potential. Junhan, thanks so much for, for this great book. Uh, also, your continued great reporting. You've got a piece out this morning that I just saw on the fine that was levied on Mintz Group. So you're still the, the place to go and the person to read to mm-hmm. understand China's evolving political system. So thanks very much for your time. Thank you very much, Jude. Appreciate it. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 